tortoise. Hello and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis. We're interested in the numbers that make sense of what's going on. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster, so I spend a lot of time listening to voters talk about what they think of various policies. I'm Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University and my specialist subject, polls. This week, Keir Starmer gave his speech as leader of the opposition at Labour Party conference and attacked the Prime Minister for the levelling down of working class aspiration to go to university. Why would he say that, Rachel? Because although there have been no policies from the government to reduce the number of people going to university, rhetorically, the Conservative Party has been increasingly talking about low value degrees. And is it the case that people from working class backgrounds are more likely to go to low value degrees? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, John. Okay, so what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about higher education. So we're going to look at three trends and we're going to answer John's question. The first is, who is going to university now? Is it working class aspirant people or middle class children? How do we pay for higher education and why has that become particularly politically interesting in recent years? And what does the massive increase in the number of people going to university and higher education mean for us as a society? Has it changed us? Has it changed our views? Has it changed politics? So the first number then for us to think about is the fact that now 38% of people um, are going to university, a record proportion of the 18 to 24 age group. This is a remarkable transformation in a relatively short period of time. In 1950, just 3% of the relevant age population went into higher education and just 1.2% of women. The number of people awarded first degrees has gone up from less than 20,000 back in 1950 to over 400,000 today. So what's happened to the women? And women, not only here, but across the world, are now more likely to go to university than men. And one of the fascinating things about this is, although we'll talk mostly about Britain, this is not just a British story. It's a global one. Across the world, there has been a massive increase in the number of people going to university. And I actually think the most remarkable story is China, which has gone from 3% of people going into higher education in 1990 to over 50% today. But this is also our personal story, isn't it, John? I mean, you, you have experienced a lot of this. You've yeah, seen I'm, it. I, know, I'm, I, I like a lot of people of my generation, um, first generation university. Um, so I went to university in 1973. Um, neither of my parents had, had been anywhere uh, near a university. But we, of course, were also the generation which we'll come on to, which A, had no fees, and B, if we were coming from relatively less well-off backgrounds, had student grants. So we could pretty much pay for our way through university without having to work, which, again, might be something we'll come back to. Now, I'm just a sliver younger than John. So yeah, I, you're uh, second generation. Uh, you, so yeah. I'm, I'm second generation university mostly. And I was thinking about my grandmother this morning who went to a grammar school in Aberdeen. We can talk about the difference between Scottish and English higher education in a bit. And she wanted to become a doctor. 
But in those days, you did have to pay to go to university. And my great-grandfather's view was, I'm not paying for her to go to university because she's going to get married. She's going to quit her job anyway. What's the point? The transformation of women and broader opportunities as told through universities over the last 50, 60 years is really remarkable. I mean, I certainly still remember in the 1970s when there were still fewer women going to university than men. It was partly about, well, you know, it wasn't economically worthwhile for women to go to. Even though now, as we will talk later, it's become much more expensive to go to university. We no longer take that view. Women are actually more likely to take on the burden, quote unquote, of debt uh, to go to university because, at least in part, uh, they think that they are going to profit um, uh, economically and in the labour market subsequently. So it is quite a dramatic transformation, not just in the number of people, but in the gender ratio of, of our universities. And, uh, you know, and it's also I like to, of course, the fact that we've now got a number of professions, medicine most obviously. Again, in my day, medical schools were dominated by men medicine is becoming increasingly a feminized profession. And actually, I'm looking at the the numbers going into different subjects at university right now. And what is interesting is, although, as you say, more women than men now go to university and do very well, the subjects they study remain very, very different. So you do now have more women than men going into medicine and dentistry. But the biggest subject by miles for women to go into is this kind of category called subjects allied to medicine, which is mostly nursing. Whereas if you're a man, you're much more likely to go into business and management. You're much more likely to go into computing. You're much more likely to go into engineering technology. And physics. Well, not many people do physics full stop. But actually, interestingly, physics is less gendered And the sort of very elite subjects are slightly less gendered than many of these other more vocational, by which I mean they're going straight into a job, subjects. That that I suspect is also a relatively recent change. I mean, my my daughter partly did physics at university and she was definitely in a relatively small cohort of women in a large group of men. So there we go. And it is also going to depend very much on the university because we talk about this thing called higher education. Sure. But the experience of someone in a university which is local to them as you said they're probably working part-time they're very plausibly living at home which is a common experience well i think we now have over half of university students working during term time and it's now almost become part of the norm of how students finance their way through they're obviously particularly at the moment because of the rise of the cost of living and uh, you know the maintenance loans have not caught up with with this is that they're having to work in order to finance their way through. There's no other other way that they could get through it. Uh, And that, again, is a very different environment from the one that you and I, I think, both experience. Absolutely. And the other thing that has changed dramatically because higher education has become so much bigger is a lot of people are going to university locally they're not travelling to go to a Russell group in the sort of mind. Because it's expensive. Okay. It's very expensive. And also there are more universities and many of them are, again, in the broadest sense of the word, quite vocational. Yep. You're not going to study philosophy and to think great thoughts for three years. You are trying to get a job in nursing or in law or in business or yep. in IT. Yep. And that's a very big part of why people... Yeah, and my, my, own, my own university, Strathclyde, it's not a vocational university, but 
Uh, it was once a, a, a technical uh, institute, which be, uh, went back to being a university in the 1960s. And, you know, lots of engineers, lots of people doing business studies. And the truth is, it does have a very high employment rate, you know, within six months of people getting a degree, because these are uh, all areas where uh, there is a high demand for the skills that the university produces. And there aren't too many people doing subjects like English and philosophy got, no. was gotten rid of quite a while ago. Yeah, they've become less popular. So, so we've had this phenomenon where huge increase in the number of people going to university, really huge increase in the number of women going to university, but studying quite different things from men in quite different places than they would have done 50 years ago. So going back to Keir Starmer's speech, Working Class Aspiration, it is definitely now the case that huge numbers of people, a huge proportion of people across the country, including those from less advantaged backgrounds. That's a horrible phrase we always use in Westminster. We mean people from working class backgrounds go to university and see it as a route to getting a better job. Yeah, except that, except, on, ex, except, <laughs> except that we can't, we don't actually know the occupational class background of people who go to university. Actually, what we know is the character of the area from which they come. And when we talk about people coming from deprived backgrounds, we actually talk about people who are coming from areas with a relatively large portion of people from deprived backgrounds. We, of course, the people who come from those areas may still be disproportionately themselves from relatively affluent families within those backgrounds. So we, we, in the end, we don't have that good statistics. But I mean, the, the whole issue of whether or not tuition fees and the debt that since the late 1990s, when you know, tuition fees were first introduced, uh, whether or not they themselves also reduce uh, working class participation in universities is a subject of considerable controversy. And of course, we've had a, um, a little bit of um, an exper natural experiment on this because we should remind everybody that everything we've been talking about so far, or virtually everything we've been talking about is so far, England. is about England, right? And Wales. Yes, though, although the Welsh government does uh, have rather more support than is, than is true in England. But in Scotland, tuition fees were abolished uh, after the um, uh, SNP came to power um, in, in 2007. Um, although um, there are still, there aren't university grants, there's, there's, they'll still have to take maintenance loans. And actually, so uh, the, the, the loan system in Scotland is less generous than the loan system in England. This is part of the way in which it's, it, it's paid for. But certainly the argument that is made by some people on the, about the tuition fees argument is if you actually look, given the limitations of the statistics, at the proportion, uh, the, the difference between people from affluent and less affluent neighbourhoods going to university in Scotland to compare with England, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of difference. And to that extent, at least, therefore, it's not clear that the tuition fee regime has necessarily had that much impact on uh, people coming from less well-off backgrounds. And if we are going to go into uh, the, the, the money, how do we pay for it? It is worth saying that although I think we do know from some other data, not as granularly, that more people are going to university from every background. Funding university is still, in effect, a middle class subsidy, because if you are from a, um, A, if you're from a better off neighbourhood, better mm -hmm. off background, probably, you're more likely to go to university. And also, if you go to university, you're more likely to get a good job and you're more likely to become part of the professional classes yourself. And this has been part of the big debate about who pays for it. Yep. And how we pay yep, for it. Because the argument on the other side, of course, is that, is that society, arguably broadly, 
benefits from the skills that higher education uh, graduates acquire. Um, those are probably arguments that are particularly resonant for people, nurses most obviously, where the government has at various stages you know, provided more uh, 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 attractive funding regime, not least because we need more nurses rather than just importing them from abroad. But you know, there are you know, medicine more broadly, we say, well, you know, actually, this is something from which society benefits. So there's, in the end, in a sense, we have to have a debate about well, to what extent does society benefit from having more people with higher education skills? And to what extent is it an individual benefit for, that therefore the individual should pay for? And that debate, doubtless, is going to continue because, you know, we can argue about the relative merits of the two approaches. Absolutely. And my view is, uh, going back to Starmer's speech, that while the Conservative Party is keen on rhetorical flourishes about poor value degrees and people studying magic uh, at a university. These are tiny numbers and their interest in seriously reducing the number of people going to university is zero. We sometimes suspect, Rachel, though doubtless this will be denied (laughs) vehemently by ministers, is that they perhaps think that some of these degrees like media studies are more and sociology are more inclined to produce students who hold views that are not necessarily consistent with those of the Conservative Party. But I'm sure that's absolutely nothing to do with it. Unquestionably, but they're still not willing to actually do anything about it. And that, that that is what is interesting. They're not willing to stop people from going to university if they really want to, partly because they know it's a limit on their own aspiration, but partly because I think there is a view that this is good for growth and it is good for society, which is why every country basically yeah. around the world has yeah. seen increased higher because education Because we're, we're all talking about increasingly having to improve the skill level of people in our labour market because that's the only way in which we can survive in a globalised world. Anyway, we've talked a great deal about... We've, re- we've referenced you know, various changes in the way in which uh, English universities' uh, students are being funded. So maybe we should talk a little bit more about that in detail, Rachel. So what's the magic number that everybody sh- who- who's listening should have in their head about the funding of students who go to universities in England? OK, so I think my number is 45,000, which is the average student loan debt if you come from an English university. Uh, right now. So so when you go to university, as most of you will know, you not only get a loan for your fees for paying for the course, but you also get a loan for maintenance for your living costs, which you will often supplement mm-hmm. by working. And on average, students um, finish university with about £45,000 of debt, although not classic debt. Right, John? Clearly, before the first introduction of tuition fees in the late 1990s by the Labour government, many people would have left university with virtually no debt at all. But of course, putting the the uh, cost of university tuition, at least in part, onto individuals is a way in which the government has been trying to finance the expansion of university education without it costing the taxpayer too much. One of the problems, however, of course, which has arisen out of all of this, is whether or not university students are indeed going to end up profiting sufficiently in terms of their income during the course of their working life to be able to pay off that debt. And one of the problems the government has increasingly found, and doubtless you can talk more about this, um, is that the answer to that has been no. And that therefore, eventually, um, in 30 or 40 years' time, um, government is going to find itself having to pay off the uh, debt because you're right, it's not a classic debt. And if at the end of the day you've not managed to pay it off by the end of your working life, the government has to cough up. Yeah, so it might be worth just doing a very brief history of uh, how we've 
have chosen to pay for higher education then talk about uh, the quite controversial questions that face Keir Starmer if he becomes prime minister now. So John went to university when it was free. Yep. And they threw money at him. Yep. I went to, And I used it very well, And of I'm course. sure you used it very well. And I've had a sparkling career as a result, a model of aspiration. I went to university when fees were £1,000 a year up front and you did borrow for maintenance. So I graduated with £9,000 of debt. But let, me, but let me ask you, did your parents pay for your fees? Yes, they did. Exactly. Oh, now we are getting personal. My daughter went to university around the, sa- around the same time. Exactly. So and, and that, of course, was one of the p- arguments about it initially was that f- the fact that, and this is still true, that people whose whose parents can afford to pay the fees don't incur the debt. Absolutely. And so that to that extent, at least, there is still potentially a, what might be quite some So, uh, but but to your <clears> point, John, because it was upfront, you had to pay it. They then moved to what they called this income contingent loan system, which was originally £3,000 per year. And the yeah. idea of that, as most of the listeners will be familiar with, is you get a, a loan from the government and you pay it back in proportion to your salary, now above 25000 yeah. And you pay it for a certain number of years and then it gets written off. And I was working for the Conservative Party, I should confess, in 2009. So I will forgive you, Rachel. I know you'll forgive me, John. Thank you. I'm not sure the listeners will, but you will. In 2009, when there was this huge debate about whether you could increase that fee, because universities were saying that it didn't begin to be enough to cover the cost of university education. Mm-hmm. And uh, as was true then, as is true now to an absurd degree, a lot of this came down to a question of what you could pretend was not on the Treasury's balance sheet. Indeed. I think listeners would be shocked to know quite how many decisions in government come down to what you can pretend is or is not on the Treasury balance sheet. And so then in after the Conservatives or the coalition came in in 2010, they did raise it to its current level, effectively. It's been frozen in cash terms mm-hmm. at just over £9,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And that is, with maintenance also at £9,000 a year, now a very significant amount of money that students are graduating with. And although they don't have to pay it back until they earn a certain amount and it can get written off, it is in effect an additional tax rate of 9% a year Indeed. for every student. Indeed. Let me tell you one little calculation I, I, I made, which is to work out what is the marginal rate of tax uh, plus a student repayment loan that somebody um, will be paying if they are um, a, a former graduate. Um, and now they don't pay, start paying until about they're earning about 25k. But I reckon that above that level, they are paying about 41, 42 percent tax rate, which is exactly the same as the tax rate that somebody pays with an income of just over 50k. Um, so in effect, although we're talking a lot about you know, how the, le- the income tax has gone down, well, of course, two things have happened that uh, really mitigate that picture for, for, for graduates. One, of course, is national insurance has gone up more than once. And secondly, that 9%, that basically, graduates are paying 9p in the pound extra above £25,000. And and that takes them to a marginal tax rate that we think is something that somebody who's in a pretty relatively affluent middle class position should pay. And arguably, you know, you know, to what extent, you know, one fascinating question is, you know, to what extent is some of the labour market unrest, particularly inside the public sector, where 
you know, the returns from education are tend to be less because payers less. You know, to what extent are younger people who are now in professions in the public sector who are paying a relatively high rate of marginal tax? You know, it's one of the reasons why they they're, they're looking for for pay increases is because they are indeed finding it relatively tough because of this because the state is taking nearly half of what they earn at the margin. And I think it's worth adding to that that they're also facing dramatically higher housing costs than your generation would have done. Even I would have done, and there was a pretty big difference between my parents and and, and me. And then can I also ask, Rachel, maybe is this fair or not? Is the way in which we have decided to fund university education uh, an equivalent to PFI, right? In other words, to what extent are we basically kicking the can down the road and, the, you know, in the end, a significant proportion of students won't have paid off their, their debt, quote unquote, even though it's now the timeline they have to do so has been extended, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we will find that in 20, 30, 40 years time, the state is finding itself with an unexpected bill, much as the way we're now finding that those hospitals that were built under both conservative and labour regimes under public finance initiative are now also beginning to squeeze the NHS budget. I think this is a good question. And just to sort of pull out two big trends that we've we've kept coming back to and probably will before I answer that specifically. So the first is that we have a younger generation that, while it is relatively left-wing on some issues, hates the idea of paying more tax. And yep. this is part of the story. They're paying very high marginal tax rates, partly because of students. And the second is that there are lots of ways in which the current uh, tax and spend and funding debate ignores these problems that we're building up, whether that is demography and future pressures on the health service yep. or, as you said, uh, paying it back. So so just to answer the question specifically, until very recently, the government recently changed the, the way in which student loans were done. The assumption was that only 23% of students would pay back their full student loan, despite this relatively high rate. Yep. Even now that they've changed it, where effectively they said, we're going to write it off later, um, that's the big change, um, only half are going to pay it off in full if the government's assumptions are correct. And government assumptions very rarely are correct. And on this these is kind of presumably timelines. also on the assumption that the level of the tuition fee doesn't rise significantly. And of course, universities who many of which welcome the, the tuition fee I, uh, I, idea of £9,000 and on the basis that this would mean that we were no longer dependent on decisions made by politicians to fund us have now discovered that politicians have found but it's quite a good idea to freeze the tuition fee and therefore universities are finding that they're now making a loss. So um, uh, the, the universities that thought they'd escaped uh, the decisions, the short-term decisions made by politicians because they were no longer being funded directly have discovered they're still within that trap. But uh, Rachel, one thing we should also talk about before we move on is I think Public First has done some work on what people think about this system and whether or not they want to get rid of it or change it or whatever. We have. And and the reason we did this big polling on tuition fees was because the last Labour leadership promised to abolish tuition fees. And the current Labour leader at one point. And the current Labour leader at one point said that he would uh, match this. And this has been dropped. And the reason it's been dropped is exactly as John said, because we have this dilemma where simultaneously... Uh, Students think it's very expensive, and they're right. They have high marginal tax rates. Universities say the amount they're paying is not enough, and yet the state is still not recouping a large amount of this loan. So everybody is somewhat unhappy. Indeed. So we did some polling which showed 
very broadly that while people are sympathetic to the idea that tuition fees are very expensive, it is a very low priority for them on government spending compared to all the other things that they would like the government to so spend more spend, what, so what, what, money so, on. So what, Rachel, do they possibly imagine is more important than the university? Ceci, speaking as a university lecturer. Well, uh, I'm sure it will astonish you to know, John, that they would quite like more money on the health system. Yes. They care more about school education than mm-hmm. they do about university education, mm-hmm. partly, of course, because they think that um, university is a choice mm-hmm. in a way that school isn't. And depending on your age group, you know, there were actually relatively few things that the government could spend money on that didn't rank higher. Fundamentally, people want core public services more than they want more tax to go into universities. Now, that doesn't mean that governments can't make the decision that universities are important for society, they're important for growth, they should pay for it anyway. Mm -hmm. But there isn't a groundswell of political pressure. But there isn't a groundswell of opposition either, yes? Society is kind of broadly split on the subject. Yeah, and and I'd be interested in your view, John, because you watch the polls too. This is one of those issues which, except for a relatively small percentage of people, isn't a tier one question, right? It's not driving votes. It's it's, not the sort of thing that parties lose or win elections for. And and we asked this, and very few people were going to change whether they voted for Labour or not uh, by their decision on tuition fees. No, sure. I mean, British Societies has periodically uh, tracked the issue since tuition fees were first introduced. Um, Now, it's a very general question. But it won't surprise you to hear that the most popular answer by far throughout has been that, you know, some people should people, some students should pay depending on their circumstances. You know, two thirds of people will will back that idea. Uh, Very few people think that every single student should be paying all the tuition fee. But the crucial question, the crucial issue, you know, how many people think that, um, you know, nobody should have to pay. Well, it's a while since we last did it. It was back in 2016. It was 25% in England. Uh, That was down from about 30% in 2000. So if anything, it's become a bit less unpopular. Strikingly, strikingly, although uh, the SNP swear by the importance of not having tuition fees, actually, even in Scotland, now it's about 10 years ago since we last asked it, but also in Scotland, support for nobody having to pay tuition fees declined uh, between 2000 and 2013. It was down to around a quarter. So you're certainly right. It's not the idea that at least um, some people should be paying in some circumstances, at least some so, so much. That said, I mean, I think one of the things that was there in your research, and it's also very clearly there in some work that you, Gov, did recently, is that while people think it's reasonable for students to be paying a certain amount, and perhaps students from less well-off background paying rather less, the amount that people think that they should be paying isn't £9,000. I think in your uh, research, it suggested maybe £6,000 was acceptable. Actually, YouGov uh, suggested that if you were charging much more than £3,000 a year, people no longer thought it was good value for money. And if I had to guess where Labour could go, given where the polling is and their own view, it seems much more likely that they're going to put more money into maintenance grants. So not expecting people to borrow everything for the cost of living as opposed to the and fees. And presumably that will go to the working class kids for whom Sikir Starmer is. And it is relatively popular. So that seems a much more plausible place. But I mean, we've talked about this massive expansion in higher education and, yep. and, and this change particularly for women, but for everyone. We've talked about the dilemma that has caused 
you know, governments and political parties in terms of how this gets funded. But I think the other interesting question, John, which you've done a lot of research on is, does having this huge graduate class in our society change things? Has it changed their views? Does it change how people vote and what they think and what they want? Yeah, well, let's start off with one of those questions. If it's, if it's right, but let's we'll look at attitudes. And I'm going to come back to British social attitudes, which, as you know, I, kind of, I kind of helped to run and, you know, it's, uh, looks at the long-term run. So, so, so one of the things that we have on that, which listeners may remember from a few weeks back, we have a, a, a sequence of questions that's designed to measure whether people are broadly liberal or authoritarian. So it's things like their attitudes towards the death penalties or whether young people should be taught traditional values, okay? And on this scale, we can give people a, a score between zero and 100. And zero means they're very, very liberal and 100 means they're, they're very, very authoritarian and anybody should be sent to prison for any infraction of the law. Um, now, actually... Graduates have always been more liberal than society in general. If you go back to 1986, the first time that British Social Attitudes asked it, um, on our measure from zero to 100, graduates were 13 points more liberal than were, people, than were society in general. And intriguingly, that gap, despite the expansion of university education, is still much the same now. So. Graduates appear to be more liberal, but there are lots of questions that come out of that. Well, so I think one interesting question, and I've seen slightly contradictory evidence on this, is whether going to university makes you more liberal. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the trends we haven't talked about is if you're at a Russell Group University, a relatively selective one, about a quarter of the students are going to be international now. You're in a very different world. Um, Or whether the sorts of people who are more liberal are more likely to go to university because they find it exciting and they might move and it's urbane and interesting. Do you have any views on that? I think... Certainly, there is. Uh, well, I mean, both b- both can be true, and both probably are oh, true. Yeah. Okay, um, not le- you know, not least of the reasons why people who uh, apply to go to university might be already more liberal is that you know, as we've already talked about, there is a class stroke affluence background, and that will be associated with education. So, therefore, they're more likely to have had parents, perhaps, who've been to university and therefore uh, have been brought up in a more liberal uh, environment. But equally, however, there's quite a lot about universities that arguably are going to make people relatively more liberal and more broadly um, uh, cosmopolitan. Uh, In part, you're right, it's the experience of living uh, uh, in a much more uh, international environment. It's the experience of living in an environment where people come from a whole variety of backgrounds, etc., etc. But if it were simply a question of people coming from more liberal backgrounds going to university, then I don't think we would have expected the gap between graduates and the rest of society in how liberal graduates are to have been unchanged. You would have basically expected the gap to have narrowed. And the gap has not narrowed. That said, you know, there are also one or two other fascinating things going on. As we might expect, although more liberal, again, if we go back to 1986, Graduates were actually, again, on another measure that British social had to start, left or right, which is essentially about how concerned are you about inequality. At that stage, they were more likely to have right-wing views than were society in general. So we're back to that elite. 
of people who were in a relatively privileged position who went into probably particularly highly paying professions in many instances and certainly had a social standing in our society that arguably today's graduates don't necessarily have. And yep, they were much more uh, inclined to be right wing. It's not that they've now become more left wing, but basically the gaps just disappeared. But then, of course, the fascinating thing is party preference. (laughs) And now, as you might expect, given that I have said that graduates back in the 1980s were rather more right wing, is indeed they were more likely to think of themselves as conservative rather than Labour. On British social attitudes figures, and this is identity, it's not just how people vote, 31% thought themselves as conservatives, 25% as Labour. Now, those figures are more or less reversed. You can see why conservatives aren't too keen on too many people going to university. It's 33% currently identify as Labour, 23% as conservatives. Now, that's partly because, as I said, they're, they're now no longer more uh, uh, more right-wing society. But of course, it's, getting, it's tied up with the fact, thanks to the Brexit divide and the cultural arguments, um, I know the woke and anti-woke, all that stuff puts graduates in a different place from where many people inside the Conservative Party are and many people inside the Leave movement were. And to that extent, at least, we have seen a, a fundamental realignment in the relationship between graduates and party preference um, over the course of of the last uh, thirty years, and, and you know to that extent at least, uh, you know the expansion of university. I mean, it's not just the expansion; it's also the way in which being a graduate and the attitudes that have all long been associated with graduate being politicised, but it has had an, uh, an impact, which in a sense is favourable towards Labour, which in a sense therefore going back to earlier conversation, indicates how Labour are being a wee bit brave and not saying they're going to pay for that university education from which uh, many of their supporters pro- profited. And actually, it's, a, it's an interesting reminder. I remember I was uh, I voted Labour in 2005 when I was in university. And then lots of my fellow C- confessions students... Confessions, folk. Rachel no, Labour. No, uh, <laughs> lots of my fellow students were outraged because at that point, Labour were pro-tuition fees. And the Conservatives were the ones who said, this is a terrible idea... As to the Liberal Democrats, do it, yes, as much the Liberal Democrats, and so um, and so, lots of my fellow students did not vote Labour because they thought that tuition fees were such a, a a terrible idea. Which is perhaps a reminder that what seems like a entrenched trend at the moment does in fact change. Sure. Before we finish, we asked people whether they had any questions and to email in. Uh, Oliver Turner has emailed us to ask, what is a realistic best case scenario for the Conservatives at the next election? I think probably that's one for you, John. Well, I think the honest truth is that given that the Conservatives, as we speak, are 17 points behind in the opinion polls, but given also that the Conservatives do not have any friends inside the House of Commons. We know that the Liberal Democrats will not help to sustain a minority Conservative administration. We know that the SNP will definitely not help to sustain a minority Conservative administration. And I suspect not even the DUP will be willing, that willing to help to ma- maintain a minority Conservative administration as they were between 2017 and 2019. 
so that therefore the Conservatives have to virtually win. They've got to get themselves to the point where they've got about 320 seats in the, in the House of Commons, even if they're the largest party. So long as the opposition parties can vote them out, they won't be able to get a King's speech through. But, but, the electoral geography that Labour face is potentially relatively disadvantageous. Maybe that's, this is something else we could talk about in, in, in a future broadcast. But on the standard noddy arithmetic of assuming party support goes up and down by the same amount everywhere, Labour may well need a 12, 13-point lead over the Conservatives just to get an overall majority of one. And that's not difference, not difference from a majority, from a, from a lead of 17. So while the chances of the Conservatives being in office at the next election do look remarkably low... We still cannot rule out the possibility of a hung parliament. Now, why might a hung parliament be good news for the Conservatives? Well, of course, the Labour Party are hoping that if we do get a hung parliament, they will be able to call the second election fairly rapidly and be able to win it. And they cite 1974, but they forget that actually in October 1974, Howard Wilson got a majority of three and in the end ended up having two years later to do a deal with the Liberal Party in order to remain in office. And I think the point is that if the Conservatives lose and they lose badly, then I think there can be quite a lot of internal bloodletting, a lot of arguments about where the Conservative Party goes. Mr Sunak is certainly out, etc., etc. But if it's a hung parliament, particularly heavily hung parliament, with a deeply minority Labour government, there will be a Conservative Party that perhaps will say, well, hang on, we've given them a terrible inheritance. They're going to become deeply unpopular. And the moment they're unpopular... We will be able to try and, 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 and turf them out and maybe they won't be able to do a deal with the opposition parties. So that I think and therefore they potentially might be able to get back into power much more quickly. So I think that's the opposition the hopeful scenario for them. Now, the second question Oliver asked, which is relevant because this week uh, Keir Starmer's speech was interrupted by a shower of glitter from someone who we think slightly inarticulately was arguing for some sort of proportional representation Indeed. system, uh, is what what could that mean for the debate about first past the post, our current system, and uh, proportional representation? Because it's quite noticeable that Labour, I think entirely rightly, has dropped talking about PR since it looked like they might win a majority. Oh, no, 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 hang on. Do you, 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 you Am need, I being unfair? No, no, well, no, you're not being unfair. The reason why the Labour Party didn't talk about proportional representation in its conference this week is because though the advocates of proportional representation inside the Labour Party for the first time last year succeeded in getting the party to be committed to proportional representation. It's a stronger motion than the one they had before 1997. And because they know the leadership are not in favour and because the Labour Party now thinks it might be able to win under the current system, if it were back on the agenda this year, the advocates of reform were, were afraid they might lose. OK, this is the real politic of what was going on. But the truth they, is... They mostly just make the tr- the, 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 truth is that, <laughs> the truth is that Sakir Starmer is opposed and it won't appear in the Labour manifesto. A hung parliament potentially matters. This is where you, this is where we get into looking ahead. If there are any point in a hung parliament, the Liberal Democrats have any leverage over a minority Labour government, they will say the price is a referendum on proportional representation, which the Labour Party will be expected to campaign in oh, favour for. Yeah. I think the other question, by the way, that people have been asking me about, that we're all going about is, of course, when will the election be? Well, given the Tories are so far behind, I don't think it's going to be before next October. And I'll give you a date. 
the 24th of October next year, which happens to be the last Thursday before the clocks go back. And I think basically that's the last, although the government technically can go to the 25th of January 2025, it's the last decent date that you can hold an election without expecting activists to be going out into the cold and the damp and the dark. So, And without the annual NHS winter crisis. If you do have another question for us or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss, do email trendy at tortoisemedia.com. New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. For now, that's it from Trendy This Week. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.